So uh, when Rodney asked me to speak, of course, the question came up as to what to discuss. So I gave him a whole bunch of options. And he said, no, no, I think you need to do this one. Okay. So I said, cool. I love this one. Okay. So the title of this message is called Our Sacred Duty to the Lost. Our Sacred Duty to the Lost. And um, we are going to look at the life of an incredible individual. His name is Stephen. And so if you got your Bibles, we're going to not get there right away, but you can go to Acts chapter 6 and 7, and we're going to try and glean from those chapters and from his life the meaning of successful evangelism. That's the point here, okay? What is successful evangelism? But maybe before I do that, let's give you a little bit of background on, uh, which might help you understand our context, okay? So I'm just going to give you a, a little bit of this. So... Um, <laughs> Meg and I have been missionaries in France and Switzerland for 33 years. I was actually raised for the first 15 years of my life in Geneva as a business kid when I never, hear, never remember hearing the gospel. And when I was 19, that's me, when I was 19, I took a trip and I backpacked alone for six months to India where I was uh, brought to Christ by a missionary on the street in New Delhi, India and came back and immediately sensed a very strong call in my life uh, to go back and preach the gospel in the very city I'd, I'd been raised but had never heard the gospel. Well, Meg got saved in 1974 in Japan, okay? And uh, this is her on the left. She was over there by herself and um, became a believer through a Billy Graham Bible, just reading the last page on how to become a Christian while she was there as an exchange student. After college, Meg and I became flight attendants while she is there as a flight attendant, as you can see. Okay, these were the quality of the pictures back then. And guess what? I also became a flight attendant, okay? <laughs> So maybe you know the rest of the story. So we actually met at the Pan Am Terminal in JFK Airport. We eventually got married, and we moved to a place you're very familiar with, Grace Community Church. And of course, um, Meg worked at the church while I went to seminary. And in 1985, I was ordained, and we were finally sent out to Paris, and we started a church. That was our steeple. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, not really, okay? So uh, from there, we moved to Geneva. This is a city I was raised in. As you can see, it's surrounded by France. And uh, we actually, this is kind of interesting, we live in France. So this is kind of confusing for people. We live in France, one kilometer from the Geneva border, but our church is in Geneva, okay? So that's how it works. About 100,000 people do that just because it's so much cheaper to live in France and Switzerland. And actually, our church, the one we started 12 years ago, that's not actually the building, okay? We meet, we meet in the VIP center of the soccer stadium. And here, from the inside, you can see, actually, that's John MacArthur in the inside of the church looking into the soccer stadium. A little distracting when there's a soccer game, so we put up curtains, okay? So this is our church with about 30 nationalities, and um, this is a cool kind of view of Geneva because, you know, Geneva is surrounded by Alps, so this is actually a view into Geneva from an Alp. The problem is it's covered by fog, okay? So we do get quite a bit of fog over there, but it is beautiful fog, they say, okay? And of course, we, we work with the March family, uh, James and Julia March. We've been with them for the last four years, a wonderful, wonderful family, and um, this is actually our family. This is a true picture. It's not photoshopped, okay? And uh, the, on the left are our two boys, uh, John, William, and James, and they actually both live and work in Dubai. And our daughter, Kimberly, lives in Paris. And this is Meg and me. We've now worked in France and Geneva for the last 33 years. So that very quickly is just kind of our context. It also kind of gives you an idea of uh, what it looks like to live over in Geneva. So 
another thing is as I speak of Geneva this morning, you'll notice that I sometimes just refer to the whole thing as France. Geneva is a French-speaking city, and therefore we've been greatly influenced by France. So if you just hear me talk interchangeably, that's just because that's the way you do it over there when you're there. Now, let me give you a little bit about France. Who's been to France or Switzerland before? Raise your hand. Okay, we got some travelers around here. Now, France is truly a fabulous country and the most visited tourist destination in the world. I don't know if you knew that. It's unparalleled in beauty. There are literally, and this is what I think a lot of people like about France, thousands of absolutely perfect little cafes and restaurants in France. Amen? It's incredible. I mean, the food is absolutely incredible. It's a wonderful place uh, to be able to enjoy that kind of thing. But surprisingly, maybe you don't know this, France is also one of the most depressed countries in the world. Yes, I said depressed. And the French openly admit it. A survey was done many years back, and they concluded, listen to this, that the French are more depressed than Iraqis and Afghans. Absolutely true. Even the president openly talks about these things. The French, you may have noticed, are also pretty mad and very critical about a lot of things. Strikes in France are notorious. Maybe in following for the last six months, the yellow jackets every Saturday, they've just gone down to Paris, trashed it. They clean it all up Monday. Everything opens up again. This has been going on every Saturday for months. So the question is, why? Why is it that the French are this way? What is it about this? We're making generalities here, okay? But there is a general generality about that kind of attitude. What is it? I think there's three reasons, really, in history. I'm not going to develop them. But first of all, Protestant persecutions in the 16th and 17th century. Did you know that no country in the history of the world has shed more blood for the gospel than France? I mean, what do you think the effect is on your country when every evangelical is either slaughtered or kicked out of the country? Well, the, 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 the result is what you see today. It had major moral negative impact on the country. Second reason is the French Revolution, where any remnants of the Catholic Church were either which completely wiped out, including the, royal kin, the royalty, and they were all decapitated by the famous guillotine. That explains why so many of the French today are so anti-authority, just cannot stand authority. And thirdly, the 19th century philosophy, which convinced the French through logic and philosophy that God does not exist. So you got persecutions, French Revolution, philosophy. What's left? Humanism. Humanism. Man is at the center of everything with a repulsion for anything spiritual since God basically does not exist. Now imagine being parachuted into that context and that culture to preach the gospel. This is why they call France the graveyard of missionaries. They usually say that about Italy too because it's also a really tough place. So you can get really discouraged very quickly because of little receptivity, little results, and often hostility toward you and the gospel you preach. Work, it is true, is generally slow, hard, dry, and very often fruitless. Now, there are exceptions. I'll show you some later. But generally speaking, this is the spiritual condition of France with only, listen to this, 1% evangelical. 1%. That means 99% statistically of the people in France don't know Christ. That's like a massive mission field. So, it is in the midst of this unsympathetic 
environment that missionaries in France and Geneva like us are always looking for evangelistic opportunities. We're always praying to God saying, Lord, please just give me like one person, just one person I could meet and lead to Christ. Well, an amazing thing happened about 18 years ago. We'd been in Geneva about four years. And um, I got this like incredible phone call. We'd been in missionaries in Paris, as I just said. And um, I was pastoring a church planting church downtown Geneva. I'd been praying the Lord about this evangelistic opportunity. So this phone rings. I'm in the kitchen. I answer the phone. And this guy says, hello, is this John Glass? I go, yes, it is. And he says, "Um, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I'm calling you to ask you if you would like to become the chaplain of a pro hockey team in Geneva. I'm going, excuse me? I started laughing. I said, is this a joke? I knew, because I've lived there a long time, that there were no chaplains either for hockey or for any sport. They just don't exist. He said, no, no, this is not a joke. I'm quite serious. You see, I work for a very wealthy American. His name was Anschutz. He's the same guy, by the way, that owns a staple center in L.A. Same guy, okay? Really wealthy guy, obviously. And he said he just purchased six hockey teams, including the Geneva hockey team in Europe. And he's a believer, and he wants a chaplain in the team. So we did research around Geneva. We found you, and we think you'd be the perfect chaplain. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm going, are you serious? I said, is this like a joke? He says, no, no, this is not a joke. This is really, really for real. I said, look, even if this is real, I think you got the wrong guy. I said, I don't like sports, and I've never been to a hockey game in my life. He answers, perfect. For real. So I'm going, what's the deal here? He goes, look, we're not interested in having chaplains who want their pictures taken with the hockey players. We want chaplains who are interested in people. I said, oh, wow. That was like weird, man. So I said, okay. So this started a 16-year journey as a chaplain for the Geneva hockey team, okay? Um, I had a lunch with the first coach. His name was Chris McSorley. Maybe some of you know hockey. Well, his brother, Marty, was a real big-time hockey player. So this is his brother. So uh, we met, and he said, John, look, you're the chaplain. I'm the hockey player. I'm going to teach them hockey. When they're messed up, you come in. You help them. Between you and me, we're going to make a winning team. I'm going, okay. He says, come on in and talk to the players. Man, I was so scared. I thought, you know, they don't know what a chaplain is. They've never seen a chaplain or a pastor in their lives. So I'm going to go in there and I'm I'm dead, you know. So I thought, okay, I got two or three minutes to talk. I picked this verse, Mark 8.36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So I went in there and I told these guys, look, you guys are gaining the whole world. You're famous, big money, play hockey, but you're losing your soul. I'm here to help you gain your soul. They all looked at me. Huh? <laughs> I mean, like, woo, you know, totally. So I thought, okay, what do chaplains do? They do chapels. So I started chapels. Guess how many people came? Zero. So I thought, oh boy, this is not going really well, okay? So I did that for a few weeks. I thought, no, no, no. So someone said, John, take them donuts. Problems, there are no donuts in Switzerland. So I said, Meg, can you make me those fantastic American brownies? She did. Two pans, like really hot, gooey, super good. I go in there. Suddenly, I'm a national hero. (laughs) They went berserk. They loved it. And so for the next 16 years, no joke, 
I took them brownies. Every time I went in there, they loved the brownies, okay? And I did chapels. One or two guys came. For 16 years, I did that. So here's my question. What was the result? What was the result of 16 years, week after week, trying to bring these guys to knowledge of Jesus Christ? Here's the result. Not one person that I know of has ever come to Christ in that ministry. Never. Zero visible results that I know of. So here's my question. Trick question. Was I successful? Hmm. Was I successful? Now, you see, that's really complicated when you're a missionary, and especially when you need to send newsletters. <laughs> it's like, oh, ladies and gentlemen, I've been in this ministry for 16 years. No one's ever come to Christ. Please send funds. <laughs> that, thank you very much. That really works well, you know? So, so how do you do this? How do you do this? So was I successful? You see, it's an important question because this question forces us to think through the meaning of success in evangelism. How do you evaluate success in missions? How do you judge if a missionary is doing a good job or not? How do you evaluate if a missionary is successful or not? How do you decide if a missionary is worth supporting or not? You may have had that thought about missionaries you are supporting if you support someone. So how do you define the success? And especially during a missionary conference, it's, it's important to talk about this because there are a lot of missionaries here from all over the world. Now, I'm just going to share my heart here. Some of them are doing really well. Ministry is booming. TMAI centers are just bringing in students. They're multiplying in their countries. Families doing well. Support's doing well. I mean, you hear their stories, you go, whoa, cool. But you know what? I guarantee you, there are other missionaries who are doing really bad right now. Ministry seems to be fruitless after years of hard work. Maybe families are struggling. Support is low. Life is complicated. Maybe they're tempted to give up. And when they hear about how well other missionaries and other ministries are doing, it's like a stab. It's like, whoa, I mean, these guys, it's like everything's happening. And for me, it's like, eh. So they kind of hide under the radar. And you know what? I'll tell you something. Missionaries can get jealous of other ministries just like anybody else. It's hard sometimes. So it's important to you to know as a church, as you see missionaries come through, it's not all great, not all easy. Some are doing well, some are not doing well. And usually during a missionary life, it's up and down. That's the way it works. Many low-fruit missionaries are discouraged and wonder why they should keep going. What's the point? My question, therefore, is how do we evaluate success? Well, my sermon this morning really has two purposes. First of all, to help missionaries in low-fruit ministries like us, at least in the hockey domain, stay encouraged. Okay? That's number one. Number two, to help you, if you're not a missionary, to understand the different kinds of missionaries there are out there, high-fruit but also low-fruit missionaries, and to love them and help them and encourage them all the same. So, to give us a better perspective on how to consider this question and answer it, 
I'd like to, uh, to, uh, to examine the life of one of the greatest evangelists of all times. His name is Stephen, okay? So let's go to the Bible, and let's go to Acts chapter 6. And as we uh, get there, let me ask this question. I mean, why did I pick Stephen? Well, simply, it's, it's very simple why I picked Stephen, because Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. First martyr. And greatly honored as such. Stephen's name in Greek means crown, Stephanos. That's pretty appropriate since he was crowned as the church's first martyr. So think about this. Being the first martyr is no small thing. I mean, it was such a huge deal that actually two chapters are dedicated to his life in the book of Acts. That's a lot of space dedicated to one man's life in Holy Scripture. Now, do you know why he was martyred? Because he took the evangelistic mandate seriously and he dared confront sinners with the truth. You know what? It cost him his life. So his story is actually critical to understand when you engage in evangelism. So we'll see as we look at his life that certain qualities made him a great witness, a great evangelist. Qualities that will help us evaluate how we're doing in that area. But I warn you, the conclusion on evangelistic success may surprise you and may even trouble you. But at the same time, I think that the conclusion will liberate all of us, I hope, just to be a little bolder as we witness. So let's look at these qualities that made him successful. And there are seven, okay? There are seven. Wait, okay? There are seven. So number one, number one, very simple. He was based in the church. Let me briefly review the book of Acts. As you know, the first time we hear about Stephen in the Acts chapter 6, the Holy Spirit has come down from heaven. The church is born. Peter has preached two sermons in chapter 2 and chapter 5, and 5,000 people have come to Christ. Okay, this is like instant revival. But with such incredible growth, came challenges in the young church. And one was about food, a food crisis. Apparently, some jealousies emerge over the presence of many foreigners and Hellenist widows, Greek widows, and some of them were getting shortchanged in food distribution. So, the rescue plan is put into place to feed these needy widows. And in chapter, look at verse 2, and 12, the 12, the rescue plan is put into place, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God or to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose who? Number one on the list is our man, Stephen. Stephen. They choose seven men. Number one on the list is Stephen. They want seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. Godly men. Now, I want you to notice two things. First of all, as I just said, the first one on the list here is Stephen, our guy. Now, think about this. What kind of man do you think he was for being the first guy chosen out of a church of 5,000 people? Pretty top-notch reputation. But I really, what I really want you to see is in verse 3. Where did they find this guy? But select from um, among you. Literally, men of you. Ah, 
See, folks, the reason I like this so much is because with all that we're going to see about Stephen this morning, we must never forget that Stephen was totally committed to the local church. He was a local church guy. All the ministry did came out of the local church. It's exactly like Paul. Paul in chapter 13 went through 3, verse 2. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting in the church, the Holy Spirit set apart, said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So they fasted and prayed. They laid their hands on them and sent them away. See, it's the same thing with Paul and Barnabas. They were sent out from the church. They were local church. Guys, why is that so important? Well, because it's in the church that the word is preached, that character is evaluated, that elders are to be respected, that sin is to be disciplined, that gifts are to be put to use, that believers are to be discipled, and that the Lord is active. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's in his church. He's active in the church. This is where we train people. And folks, I'll tell you, this is my heart. This is what I love about GMI. This is what I love about TMAI. What I love about it is that local church based. That's rare these days to have mission agencies that are local church based. So Stephen, number one, was a local church guy. Number two, he was bridged to the world. Acts chapter six, verse seven. And the word of God kept spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, here's our guy, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Oh, the last three words are the key. Where was he? Verse 8, last three words. Among the people. Among the people. See, this verse is amazing. These verses are amazing. The word was spreading now from the Jerusalem church. People were coming to Christ, as we just read. Miracles were being performed as God had given these guys, including Stephen, the gift of miracles. But I love those words in verse 8 where it says that Stephen was among the people. You see, Stephen had a balanced life. There's almost more information about Stephen in those three words than in the rest of the chapter. They're loaded. Yes, he was committed to the church. He was a servant in the church, but he also had a complete and total foot in the world. He was among the people. You see, he had a God-ordained duty, and he knew this, not just stay in the church and serve the church, but be in the world and preach the gospel. There's no different than Jesus, we know. I mean, remember Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So where is he? He's in the villages and the towns. This is where his ministry is. And so what's the result? Verse 36, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion. The word is spalagna for them. Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Wow. Yes, he started having compassion on them. You see, when you start spending time with people in the cities and the villages, you begin to hear their stories and see their misery and their problems and the effect of sin on their lives. You begin to see broken lives and helpless lives and frustrated lives. You see busted up families and frustrated parents and children, depressed people, divorced people, separated people, lonely people, sick people, hopeless people, drugged up people, perverted people, all sorts of people. They're out there. I'd been in the hockey ministry for about, you know, a few months maybe. 
And the guy that takes care of all the equipment, his name was Oscar. So I thought, I'm going to try and share Christ with this guy. <laughs> so I went up to him, and he was just kind of in a the hallway there. And I said, Oscar, you know, I said, you know, tell me about you. So he told me a little bit about his life. So I said, you know, can I, can I, because I usually just ask people just a question that's awkward. Otherwise, I said, you know, can I tell you a little bit about why I'm a chaplain? And he goes, no way. He says, I don't want to hear anything. I said, okay. No, but I mean, I just like to give it, no, zero. I said, yeah, but I, no, I, no. I couldn't get past that. The next day he got killed on a bike. Next day. I was like, I was stunned. I just couldn't even believe it. Next day. So they got to do a funeral. They don't know what's going on. So guess who they asked to do the funeral? Me. So I, 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 I'm like, oh, incredible. So I do this funeral. It's packed. Everyone is there. He was very well known. Actually, he'd been there many years. And Meg and I were the only two Christians in the entire place. And I preached out of John 11, when your best friend dies on Lazarus. Man, I preached the gospel. I was sure they were going to kick me out of there so fast. It's not even possible. But they didn't. They didn't kick me out. And I thought to myself, you know what? When you're in the world, opportunities will pop up that you can't even imagine. So you see, it's really important. We've got to be in the church, no question about it. Number two, in the world, in the world. And this is what I like about Stephen. He, had his, he was in both. He was in both. Number three, number three. To be a great evangelist, you've got to be thirdly bathed in the word. So you know, you know what happens when you start spending time with people in the world? Among the people, opportunities to share the gospel will just start popping up like I just showed you. In verse eight, of chapter 6. We're back in Acts chapter 6. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And some men who were called from the synagogue of the freedmen, including um, both Cyrenes and Alexandrians, and some of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom of the spirit which was, with which he was speaking. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place of the law. For we have heard him say this, that Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. See, once you start doing street preaching like he was doing in this case, well, you must expect some opposition. And this is exactly what happens to him. The opposition is immediate, very strong. Arguments in verse 9, disputing or debating. False accusations by false witnesses in verse 11. They stirred up a crowd against him in verse 12. Sorry, I really need a Kleenex. Does someone, can someone give me a Kleenex? Or it's going to be really painful to listen to me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry. Sorry, I guess I've got a cold too. I don't really know. Thank you. Sorry. So, uh, so they came and, and, and finally in verse 12, they drag him physically, drag him away, bring him before the council. They put, off, put more false witnesses before him in verse 13. They actually hate him in verse 15 and his face is shining like that of an angel. And so here, Stephen is falsely accused, pushed around, shaken up, tensions to the max, ready to be lynched by the mob. And then, ladies and gentlemen, comes the evangelist's favorite question. Do you know about this question? This is great. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, 
Are these things so? Uh, Stephen, excuse me, you're being accused falsely, apparently, or maybe truly. Can you just explain to us the solution here? Are you guilty or are you not guilty? Please tell us. Hello. This is like the ultimate opportunity. He says, okay, okay, sure. What an invitation. So starting in verse 2 of chapter 7 and all the way through verse 53, Stephen answers the question by launching into a masterful sermon of 51 verses, which is actually the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And please, though, he has no Bible in his hands, no notes, no cool app on his phone. He only has his memory and his mouth. And now the body of the sermon goes like this. There are eight points. We're not going to look at it in detail, but there's eight points. He traces the history of Israel. He starts verse 2 with Abraham, verse 8 with Isaac, verse 8 with Jacob, Joseph in verse 9, Moses in verse 20, Joshua in verse 45, David in verse 45, and Solomon in verse 47. And this is what he says. I'm summing it up. God spoke through all these prophets of the past, and you Jews who are about to lynch me have rejected the very one these prophets announced, Jesus the righteous one. Now, what I want to underline here is simply this. It's the third point, that Stephen knew the facts. He knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. He was bathed in the word. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Can you? Can you? If someone asks you, can you? Monty Brewer was the missions pastor here many, many years ago. This is the guy, the missions pastor under who I was sent out. And I was in a hurry. I just wanted to go and reach the world yesterday, you know? So one day he sat me down. He says, John, listen very carefully. If I had five years to live, I would train for four and go for one. I was devastated. I thought, if I had five years to go, I would train for one and go for you for four. And he said, yep, and you'll burn out after one. Training, training. So you think, wow, well, you know, I, I don't have seminary training. Well, you know what? In 1976, when you saw my picture as a hippie there, I, I took off, I took a backpack. I, I was raised in Switzerland, took my backpack and just went on a trip. For six months, I traveled from Switzerland all through Europe to Greece, Israel, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, all by bus and hitchhiking and stuff. And I got to New Delhi, pretty bewildered about everything I was seeing. And I met a guy on the street. He was a Dutch guy, missionary. And he opened the Bible to one verse, John 3:16. He said, John, you are headed straight to hell. And then he said, Jesus Christ, he loves you. John 3, 16. He died and rose again for you. You need to repent of your sins and you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith. And you need to do it now. Ooh, I was like, whoa. So I went outside. He's following me on the street in New Delhi. He said, John, this is your last chance. You need to repent now. And you know what I did? I repented right then and there. November 2nd, 1976, boom, my life completely turned around. You know what? I've always been thankful for that missionary in New Delhi because you know what? He knew the word. He knew one verse. One verse. He took five minutes and a bit of courage and led me to Jesus Christ. Folks, you don't need to have a theological background. You just need to know one verse really well. Do you know, could you lead someone to Christ with one verse? You know, I, I have a seminary degree, but you know what I, I use most over there? F-O-F-N-D-E. 
I use FOF all the time. In DE or evangelism explosion or the evangelistic tool that Grace has, I use that all the time. Folks, if you've never done it, please do it. Take those classes multiple times. Have it in your brain because God will then deploy you with one verse maybe to lead someone to Christ. So that's what we see with Stephen. He was based in the church, bridged the world, bathed in the word, and bold with the point. Bold with the point. Oh man, this is uncomfortable. Look at chapter 7, verse 51. So this is how he ends the sermon. He's talking to the Sanhedrin here, okay? With the high priest. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Okay, let me ask you a question. How do you feel about that conclusion? Honestly. Pretty bold. Would you have said this? Have you ever said anything like this to someone you have witnessed to? Let me help you. Suppose you're talking to your neighbor Joe or to someone you meet. And you say this. You are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised in heart. Now, he will not get that at all, okay? <laughs> so you may say, you're a rotten, dirty sinner in the hands of an angry God. Again, he may not get that either, okay? But that is what you're trying to say here. Joe, I have noticed that you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. In fact, Joe, you are no different than your father and grandfather who are reprobate Christ rejectors. In fact, Joe, your ancestors are murderers since they basically killed the prophets who had announced the coming of Christ. Joe, you are a betrayer, you are a murderer, and you are nothing but a lawbreaker. That is right, Joe. You continuously break the law that was ordained by angels. What do you think his reaction will be? Interesting, isn't it? I'm not saying that you should go home and try this today, but why not? Okay? Why not? Do we have something to learn from here? Confession time. I'm a missionary. I'm a professional. I've been on the field 33 years, okay? I'm a professional. Do you know how many times I have fudged the gospel? you know how many times I've shared the gospel and not gone for the jugular and not finished like this? Many times. It's hard to do this. But what is the gospel? The gospel is judgment. Judgment redeemed by Christ, right? Judged people redeemed by Christ. So we've got to tell them about the judgment. We must never forget that people who come to Christ must repent. And they must turn to Christ. Five. Five. He was bloodied by the mob. Boy, in verse 54, and when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick. Boy, they are mad. They began gnashing their teeth at him, being full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. And they rushed upon him with impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man, Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen. And he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. He died. 
can you imagine this? I mean, you, you share the gospel with someone and this mob shows up. They want your life. They take their robes off. They have their arms unencumbered for a better, stronger, and more precise throw. They pick up hand-sized stones, kind of like bricks. They look at you with hate. They're ready to throw by pulling back their arm, positioning that stone just right in their hand for the throw, and they hesitate. Who will throw the first stone? And suddenly you're there looking at this going, man, is this for real? And boom, you get hit, and boom, you get hit, and boom, you get hit. And those stones start flying and flying, and like a flash of lightning, the pain tears through your body. And before you even have time to react, these stones just continue to hit you on the jaw, everywhere in your body, and on your arm, and on your leg. The pain is overwhelming, but there's no stopping. So all you can do is just react by trying to protect your face, but they're coming from everywhere. And it does not stop. Verse 58 says they began stoning him, but verse 59 said, and they went on stoning him. So they just kept going and they stoned him and they threw those stones with hate to kill the guy. And so in verse 60, he falls on his knees, no doubt, with one final blow to the head. Stephen tells us, we're told in verse 60, that he falls asleep, which simply means that he died. He died. Did I just throw that in front of the pulpit? Oh, no, sorry. Okay. I don't, I don't, I, I just, I mean, I, when I read these stories, I go, Lord, I, you know, people say, John, have you ever been persecuted for the gospel? I have never shed one drop of blood for the gospel ever. Well, I've been told I'm a Jesus nut. I am. You know, I've been told I, I'm a Jesus fanatic. I am. So that's okay. You know, I, I've been insulted and cursed at and stuff. But never shed a drop of the drop of blood. I'm thinking, wow, if, if this happens to me one day, am I, am I going to be able to resist? That's scary. Jesus said, whoever does not carry his own cross and comes after me cannot be my disciple. Folks, we only go this route of preaching the whole gospel if we're ready to pay the price. There will be eventually a price to pay because you won't be liked. Jesus said we'd be hated in John 15. So he dies. So this brings us to the sixth point. I'd like to really draw your attention to this point. He was battling for success, battling glorious gospel success. Of course, he was motivated by his love for Christ and wanted to see people come to Christ. Now, I'd like to ask you a question. I'd like for you to answer honestly in your heart, unless you really want to answer out loud, but, you know, I don't want to, you know. So let me ask you this question. Do you think that Stephen was successful? Was Stephen successful? Well, of course, you're probably going to say, well, yes, of course. I mean, it's Stephen. He's in the Bible. Okay, that's, that's a good answer. Really good answer, okay? Okay, let me ask you this question. How many people did Stephen actually lead to Christ? Not one that we know of directly. In chapter 758, it says that Paul is there. Probably had a huge influence on Paul who gets saved in chapter 9. In chapter 6, verse 7, it was saying a lot of people were coming to Christ. It doesn't say specifically that he was leading them to Christ. So actually, we don't know. But from what we know in the text, not one person directly comes to Christ from this ministry that we know of. So was he successful? 
I mean, it's interesting. Two chapters of holy writ consecrated to this guy's life as the first martyr of the church that we know of, not one person came to Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think Jonah was successful? On his second trip, yes. Okay. On his first trip, kind of rebellious. He came back. He obeyed the Lord, and the entire city of Nineveh repented. A city estimated over 150,000 people. And there are only four chapters in the book of Jonah. Let me ask you this question. Do you think Jeremiah was a successful prophet? Oh, now that is a tricky question. Do you remember how many people actually ended up believing his message? This is good. This is really, really good. One. One. Jeremiah 39.16 says this. God spoke to Ebed-Melech, that was the name of the guy, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring my words on this city for disaster and not for prosperity, and they will take place before on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you dread. For I will certainly rescue you, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as booty, because you have trusted me, declares the Lord. Ebed Melech, the hero of the book. Well, Jeremiah was a hero of the book. Folks, 52 chapters for one guy. One guy. Versus four chapters for an entire city, Jonah. John the Baptist. Do you like John the Baptist? I like John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, we're told that John the Baptist was preaching in the desert. His message was clear. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, verse 2. And he demanded proof of repentance, verse 8. The result, it says that mobs of people came to him to listen to him and he baptized them. But then an amazing thing happens in Matthew 14. One day Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, who was ruler of Galilee, ran into John the Baptist. He had basically stolen Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and married her illegally. So you know what John the Baptist does? No, no, he does not stay quiet. He happens to run into the king Herod and he says, Herod, you're in sin. Your marriage is illegal. How could a ruler in Israel do such an open sin? Did he keep silent? No. He publicly rebukes the king, Matthew 14, 4. And what's the consequence of his rebuke? Man, I wish I could say that Herod said, oh, I'm going to repent. No. What does he do? Chops his head off. You see, John's rebuke backfired on him. He was in prison and beheaded. So let me ask you a question. Was he a successful evangelist? You know, he could have held his tongue, not confronted Herod, and he would have lived many more years and seen many more people come to Christ, maybe. That's not what happened. So, success is apparently not a numbers issue. This is my whole point here. You know what's interesting about John the Baptist? After that, it says in Matthew eleven eleven that among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said, no greater man has ever lived in the history of the world than John the Baptist. Probably because he preceded Christ, but maybe because he was such an absolute faithful evangelist and didn't fear confronting even the king. 
he didn't fear for his life. Look, let me make you really uncomfortable. Are you ready? Jesus. Matthew 9.35 tells us something amazing about Jesus. It says this, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So he's doing massive amounts of miracles, and he's teaching all over the place. And Luke 4.40 says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many. I mean, Wow. You know, Jesus put his base of operation in Capernaum, did miracles, preached sermons. I mean, he, at one point, as I just read, completely wiped out Capernaum of all disease, literally. Now, the reader of Matthew is stunned. Two chapters later, in chapter 11, to read in verse 23 and 24, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Folks, this blows my mind. The people of Capernaum, who had a much greater opportunity to embrace Christ, having seen so many of the miracles and heard the preaching. John MacArthur preached about this last Sunday. He says, they would be judged in Hades more severely than Sodom, which was known for its homosexual debauchery and pure rejection of God. It was destroyed by fire. So here's my really awkward question. Was Jesus successful as an evangelist in Capernaum? Now that is like almost a ludicrous question. Okay, I understand that. But it's really interesting. It's very interesting. Was Jesus successful? Yes or not? Well, he did more miracles in Capernaum Use it as the base of operations, preach many times, but except for a handful of few people, the whole place was condemned to hell. Jonah saw an entire city come to Christ. So what we are seeing here, folks, all I'm saying is this. What is successful evangelism? It's much more than bearing fruit. That's, that's the desired result. I mean, I want fruit. I crave fruit. I like to see our church grow. I like to see people come to Christ. I mean, that's thrilling. That's what we all want. That's why we're there, preaching the word. Paul wanted that. You know, in Romans, he tells them that he wants to come and bear fruit among them. Context evangelism. We're supposed to make disciples, Matthew 28. And that's been our greatest driving force for the last 33 years of ministry in Paris and in Geneva. But if evangelism and success in evangelism is decided by numbers, then Jeremiah was a failure. John the Baptist was a failure in the second part of his life. This is kind of weird to say. Jesus was a failure in Capernaum. Stephen was a failure. I am a failure, and you're probably a failure too. Welcome to the club of failures, okay? So what is successful evangelism? My whole point here, it is this. It is faithfully proclaiming the gospel to all people so as to put them before a choice. Heaven or hell. Jesus or not. Forgiveness or not. That is what evangelism is. That is what evangelism is. I, I can't open someone's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Okay, here's the ultimate verse 
on evangelism. Are you ready? This is so good. Ezekiel 2. God says this to him, verse 5. And for them, ask for them, whether they listen or not, he says, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among you. Verse 7, but you shall speak my words to them whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Chapter 3, verse 4, and he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. See, my job and your job is to proclaim the truth whether they listen or not. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. That's not my problem. Matthew 7, Jesus says, by the way, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and leads to destruction and there are many who go by it. You know what? Most people actually will not believe in the gospel. Matthew 7, 14. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are very few who find it. Wow. So my sacred duty to lost is what? Proclaim, 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 proclaim. That's my duty. Okay, stop with this one and then I'm going to show you a quick thing. Here's the last one. Ready? Okay, let me ask you this question. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? That's a really tough question, I know. Luke, right? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. So now we know that Luke wrote Luke and Acts, correct? Do you know why he wrote the book of Luke? For who? Yeah, for one guy. Chapter one, one through, chapter one was one through three for a guy called Theophilus. He wrote the entire book of Acts to convince Theophilus. Do you know why he, I'm sorry, the book of Luke. Do you know why he wrote the book of Acts? Acts 1.1, for Theophilus. So, this is really interesting. We don't know very much about Theophilus. An unbeliever trying to be brought to Christ, maybe a believer, we're not too sure. Let's just assume he's a non-believer. Do you realize, by the way, what percentage of the whole New Testament is Luke and Acts put together? Do you know? 30%. Do you realize that 30% of the entire New Testament was written to convince one man of the truth? And we don't even know what happens to him. It doesn't tell us. See, the whole point here is we give ourselves to the proclamation of the gospel God will do what he wants with those people the way he wants to do it. So suddenly I'm encouraged, <laughs> really encouraged, really encouraged. So the last point, very simple. What's the result? Oh, this is incredible. I just read it earlier. Just before he was mobbed and stoned to death, the text says Stephen gazed intently into heaven saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that after Jesus did a sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here, he's standing up. He's standing up. So I'm thinking to myself, whoa, Stephen must have done something right because Jesus is standing up to welcome into heaven. I cold chills thinking about this. I mean, wow, you know, he's a martyr. He preached the gospel, no fruit. It doesn't really matter. That ultimately is not the issue. Jesus said, come on up, good and faithful servant. Come on up. And he's there to greet him. You see, he's not welcome because of the results. No, he's welcome because of his faithfulness. 
my hockey ministry did not show a lot of fruit in 16 years, right? That I know of no one ever came to Christ. Well, the life of Stephen has helped me deal with that. I've tried to be faithful to proclaiming the gospel in that context. I, I've tried. It's not always been easy. I fudged. Sometimes I did. I did. Now, having said that, I never saw very much fruit, but I got a ton of publicity because I was the first chaplain in the history of the country. So the television, the newspapers, everyone came and started doing all these reports on me. So the nightly news, like you have here, did this report on me. It's really short. Check this out. This is a video of the nightly news done about five months after I became a chaplain. It's a video of the hockey ministry about 17 years ago. In sports still, but this time in the world of hockey, it is a unique situation in Switzerland. The players of the Geneva Servat hockey team have at their disposal a chaplain, a pastor. It is a rare thing in Europe, but this position is rather common in overseas clubs, and it is, in fact, the American owner of the Servat club that imposed it at the Geneva rink. Reporting are Annelise von Bergen and Marie-Lo Machila. Less than two years ago, this man could not have imagined becoming so enthusiastic about hockey players. But for several months now, he does not miss a game of the Geneva Servette team at the rink. In his role as spiritual counselor, John Glass has become very attached to these professionals of the ice. Personally, I like the bottle illustration. I perceive myself as one of the bottles of these players, but a spiritual bottle. I don't impose myself on anyone. But if they're thirsty, they have questions, if they want to talk to someone, they're free to come and see me. Pastor of an evangelical church in Geneva, John Glass functions as the team chaplain according to the desire of the American owner of the Geneva Hockey Club. Because of his personality and his discreet presence, John Glass has gained the friendship of the players and the coach. The experience so far has been a very positive experience. I don't uh, personally go to the classes because I think the players need a break from the coach. But personally, I use John. John and I have many lunches and many meetings together, and whether it's a coach or a player, we can all use somebody to listen. Every two weeks, just after practice, John Glass offers a meeting of about 20 minutes, regularly attended by five to six players. I'm not here to make a direct link between hockey and the Bible. Rather, I'm here to help these men who may have concerns or trials and how to manage them and move forward in life. For me, this is my first experience with this program, but I think it is quite good and it allows us to share our opinions with someone else from another world. We talk about uh, issues with whether it's hockey or whether it's our lives, marriage or raising families or whatever it is, and uh, it's a good way for us to to have uh, some religion. I understand perfectly well how some people could use these kind of services. Do you use his services? <laughs> no, but as long as it stays optional, it's good. Personally, I do not need to go see a chaplain or psychologist. Sports and religion may seem to be two very different worlds, but as this experience shows, human preoccupations often go deeper than athletic challenges. Okay, well, look, folks, so now I know that I'm also a psychologist, okay? <laughs> 
So, you know, it's, it's been really an interesting ministry, though we haven't seen a lot of direct fruit. That's okay. Now, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop here. I was going to show you something else, but we just don't have time. But just to let you know, it's not all doom and gloom over there. We have in other areas in our church planning ministry. We've seen a lot of churches actually grow. You saw a couple of pictures of it. So it's not all doom and gloom. But in that particular ministry of hockey, it's been a very, that's why I call my Jeremiah ministry. So I hope as you see missionaries and you talk to them this week, you know, maybe they're in a good phase. Maybe they're in a bad phase. Maybe they're high fruit. Maybe they're low fruit. You know what? That is not the issue. That is not the issue. Encourage them. Thank them for having gone out there and doing the job. And I would also challenge you, every one of you, Lord, could I be a little more bold? Lord, I'm I'm not an evangelist, but you might be a witness. You are, Acts 1a. Maybe you need to take class. I really encourage you. The resources in this church are incredible. Please, I beg you, Use the resources. Get trained. God will use you in amazing ways. Lord, we thank you so much for the life of Stephen. God, encourage us, Lord, and may you be glorified in each and every one of our lives. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.